0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Autism Confidential, the podcast from the National Council on Severe Autism. I am your host, Jill Escher. I'm the president of NCSA. And today I am like beyond thrilled to have a very, very special guest. Um, we've never really addressed the issue of vaccines on this podcast before because I didn't think there was really any reason to. Um, you know, I, I, I just assume everybody knows that the vaccine theory has been debunked and it doesn't really deserve much more of our time or our mental bandwidth. But, you know, a funny thing happened, which is, I think the RFK Jr. bid for presidency and you've seen a lot more kind of vaccine discussion and anti-vaccine discussion, like in social media and in the general media as well. And then when I wrote that piece in the free press that, you know, took a shot at RFK Jr., I definitely got a bunch of backlash from um, vaccine skeptics. So I thought, well, you know, this issue really isn't dead, unfortunately. So this is an episode I didn't think we would have, but guess what? We're having it. And our guest today is um, the amazing Dr. Paul Offit. And I'm sure most of you um, at least have heard of him if you haven't read any of his books or, you know, seen him on TV. But Dr. Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center. And he's also a a physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's an internationally recognized expert in the fields of virology and immunology. Um, he's published more than 150 papers in, the med- in medical and scientific journals, as well as seven books. And um, a couple years ago, I, I read his book called Overkill. It's such a good book. It, it has nothing to do with autism or vaccines per se by the way, I just completely recommend it to everybody. It's about some of the the myths we have. We, we, we've sort of come to, uh, come to accept as truths, right? In the field of medicine, but, um, but he debunks these things that we think are truths. And anyway, I won't give that away. Um, he's also um, uh, an advisor. Um, he's on the advisory board to the Autism Science Foundation. And um, I think you're also a podcaster sometimes, Dr. Offit, right?
1: Yeah, I don't have my own podcast, but I'm always happy to participate in other people's podcasts.
0: Okay. Sure. All right. <laughs> so he's a frequent guest. So we're really happy to have you here. Thank you so much. Let's get right into it. Now, obviously, when a child is born, they begin um, you know, a, a series of vaccinations for good reason. Um, I just want to ask you upfront, People say, well, you know, vaccines have risks. <laughs> well, yes, every pharmaceutical on the planet has risks. Can you just tell us what are the risks of the, or it, you know, in this early vaccine schedule?
1: Sure. So um, I think, as you note, any medical product that has a positive effect, whether it's a drug or a biological, can have a negative effect. And sometimes the negative effect can be severe. I mean, we saw that with the COVID vaccines. I mean, here's a vaccine that clearly worked well, the mRNA vaccines, in terms of saving our life. but. One of fifty thousand people that got that vaccine could have myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. It's short, generally short lived and temporary, but it's real. And for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, about one in two hundred thousand could have bleeding, you know, between the the uh, the uh, skull and the brain. That could be fatal. For which reason, J and J's vaccine, the COVID vaccine, is now no longer available in the United States. So. The oral polio vaccine was itself a rare cause of polio. It occurred in maybe one per 2.4 million doses. It was rare, but it was real. The yellow fever vaccine, uh, in, for people over 65, about one in a million who get that vaccine can have pretty significant uh, a negative effect on uh, so kidney, liver, um, and uh, and lungs, essentially mimicking yellow fever. Yeah, the there was a pandemic, a, a um, pandemic influenza vaccine given in two thousand nine, primarily in Europe. Um, that was a rare cause of narcolepsy. Again, about one in fifty five thousand rare, but real. Sure. I think anytime you have something that has a positive effect can have a negative effect, but, you know, often the negative effect of the virus is far greater than the vaccine. For example, COVID is a far more common cause of bleeding and a far more common cause of myocarditis than was the vaccine. So it's always risk-benefit. I mean, there are no risk-free choices. When people say, look, you know, I'm not going to risk taking a vaccine, then you're taking another risk. And I think people don't realize that, or at least they weigh those risks differently. They they weigh the, weigh the risk of giving something and having a negative effect, being much greater than not giving something and having a negative effect, even though if the negative effect is the same, then the risks are the same.
0: Right, right. And, um, you know, I think people have become a little bit numb to the risks of not being vaccinated, right? I mean, if, if you have a, a child, the last thing you want is that for that child to get measles, you know, or mumps, or you know, or hepatitis, right. I mean, um, but, you know, we tend to discount those risks because we live in the in great comfort of the modern era, the modern highly vaccinated era when we don't suffer, you know, those, those infectious diseases. So, uh, but with it, with, you know, the the, 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 it seems like most of the fingers point to the MMR vaccine when it comes to the, you know, the people who are in the, the autism camp what about the MMR vaccine? What are those risks?
1: Right, so, so measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine is a combination of three live weakened forms of the virus. The only real risk of that vaccine is that the the, um, the mumps com- the measles component can be a rare cause of something called thrombocytopenia, which is a lowering of the platelet counts. Um, it occurs in about 1 in 25,000, 1 in 30,000 people. Yeah, what you see is you see about 10 days, 14 days after the vaccine, you'll see these little so-called petechiae, which were broken blood vessels under the skin. It's short-lived, it's self-resolved, It doesn't have any permanent harm, and the virus does that to a far greater extent than does the vaccine. But that's it. I mean, that's, that's a safe vaccine. But it's interesting. I would say the whole vaccine-autism connection really took off with the notion that MMR vaccine caused autism. It was based on a February 1998 paper that was published in The Lancet by a British researcher named Andrew Wakefield. And and it's really an amazing paper from my standpoint, from a scientist standpoint, in this respect. It was really just a case series of uh, eight children who got the vaccine and then within a month developed signs and symptoms of autism. So this researcher, Andrew Wakefield, posited the following three impossible events. One, he argued that because these vaccines were given together as compared to separately, that somehow overwhelmed the immune system. Now he could have easily done studies on these children to see whether they had a blunted immune response but he didn't. Then he postulated that because your immune system was somehow blunted, that that allowed the measles vaccine virus to travel to the intestinal surface, reproduce itself there in these intestinal cells and damage the intestine. Now he biopsied all these children. He could have easily seen whether or not there was measles vaccine virus in those cells, but he didn't. He just postulated it. Then he Mm -hmm. postulated because the intestine was damaged, that allowed for the entrance of brain damaging proteins, which he also didn't identify, that would then cross the the blood brain barrier and damage your brain and cause autism. I mean, it was just, he just made it up. The most amazing aspect of that paper was that it was ever published. I mean, didn't do anything to back up his point. Worse, as it turns out, he had a patent on a quote unquote safer measles vaccine. He was basically paid by a, 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 an injury law firm, that's a sort of Legal Services Commission, to basically launder legal claims through a medical journal. Five of those children in, of the eight were in the midst of suing pharmaceutical companies. Hmm. And this represented biological and clinical data. A couple of those children actually developed signs and symptoms of autism before they ever got the MMR vaccine. And nonetheless, he raised the the, the nicest thing you could say about that that paper is it raised a a hypothesis. Well, it's a testable hypothesis. I mean, you're not asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin here. This is a testable hypothesis, Mm -hmm. and it's been tested. So you can look at children who did or didn't get that vaccine. Make sure you control for their socioeconomic background, their healthcare-seeking behavior, their medical background, and see whether you're at greater risk of autism than if you're not. Because from the parent's point, I, I get this. I mean, my child was fine. They got a vaccine. Now they're right. not the vaccine have done it. And so the study has been done 18 times in seven different countries on three different continents, probably spending tens of millions of dollars showing that there is no association between these two things. But that's what gave birth to the notion of this vaccine autism association. And it's just never completely gone away.
0: Well, it's all not just that. Then you had the people who would hypothesize that it was the mercury in the vaccines. Then you had the people who hypothesized that it was the aluminum in the vaccines. And then you had the people who hypothesized that it wasn't just the MMR, but it was that, you know, my child was given, you know, eight different vaccinations in one well child visit. And then, you know, the next day he spiked a fever, 105, and then had a seizure and then regressed into autism. I mean, you, you hear many, many, many different stories and and ideas not just not just the Wakefield right idea Um,
1: like whack-a-mole so so you're right I mean so thimerosal was an ethyl mercury containing preservative that was in vaccines up until about 2001 vaccines for young children well it's gone it's been gone for more than 20 years has the incidence of autism dramatically decreased I don't think not It's increased. And then aluminum is, is a, is, is a um, light metal that's in the Earth's crust. I mean, assuming you live on the Earth's crust, which we pretty much all do, you're going to be exposed to aluminum all the time. We have mercury in our bloodstreams. We have aluminum in our bloodstreams. We have arsenic in our bloodstream, thallium, beryllium, cadmium. If you live on the surface of this planet, you're going to be exposed to light and heavy metals. The question is, is it at a level that's dangerous? And the answer is no. Um, so, so although it always sounds bad, I mean, Mercury is never going to sound good. It's not like there's the national center for the appreciation of heavy metals standing up in defense of Mercury, but you know, (laughs) it's, it's, you can't avoid it. I mean, I was at a congressional hearing once when one of the congressmen said, when it comes to Mercury, I have zero tolerance. Well, if you have zero tolerance, move to another planet. And if you've ever testified in front of a congressional hearing, congressmen moving to another planet is not the worst idea.
0: One thing that's always bothered me about the Mercury hypothesis is that there is such a thing as mercury poisoning. I mean, that obviously has happened. Um, and the outcome of mercury poisoning isn't autism. Like there is a phenotype, right? Associated with mercury poisoning. I mean, you can see whether it's Mad Hatter disease or what happened in Minamata Bay. You know, You can see right. this and it's not autism.
1: Right. The fumigated grain disaster in Iraq, the minimum, first of all, that's methylmercury, not ethylmercury. And methylmercury
0: Ah, has a longer
1: half-life, has a half-life of about 70 days as compared to ethylmercury, which is seven days. So ethylmercury, which is a synthetic product, is just excreted from the body much more quickly. I I understand how mercury can scare people, but again, it's, you need to ingest massive amounts as was seen in those two poisoning events and, and the mercury toxicities aren't autism. So yeah. Again, it's false, and, and aluminum also is just a very common uh, uh, light metal that we all see. Now, there can be aluminum toxicity, but in order for there to be aluminum toxicity, you need to have kidneys that don't work well or don't work at all, and take massive amounts of aluminum either in an acids or in intravenous fluids. So that's when you see aluminum toxicity, but otherwise you don't see it. And this notion that you're sort of being overwhelmed by vaccines you know, when you're in the womb, you're in a sterile environment. When you enter the birth canal in the world, you're not. And very quickly, you'll have living on the surface of your body trillions of bacteria. You have 10 more, 10 times more bacteria on the surface of your body than you have cells in your body. You have 10 to the 14th bacteria on the surface of your body to which you make an immune response. So the notion that the, the whatever 14 or so different vaccines you get in the first few years of life are in any way weakening or overwhelming your immune system is just nonsensical. I mean, if that were were true, the species wouldn't survive. I mean, if it, what I feel like sometimes when parents and I, I understand how when you you have this this newborn child or you bring the child in for the two month visit and you're watching them get laid down on that crinkly white paper yep. and. you're four or five shots it does feels wrong but if you really want to scare yourself just take a nasal swab put it on a microscope slide and then look at it it's teeming with bacteria i the food you eat isn't sterile the water you you drink isn't sterile the dust you inhale isn't sterile you're constantly challenged and mm-hmm. and vaccines really a drop in the ocean of what you literally encounter and manage every day well you
0: know to to that point um you know, people again. The theory is it's a whack-a-mole. so it depends on who you talk to. But some people talk about this, you know, immune response to these uh, challenges, right? That come in, you know, via the vaccines. Um, but I know people uh, who indeed suffered, you know, brain inflammation via encephalitis or meningitis, right? Where there's a, a legitimate, you know, infectious, re- you know, response. Right, that, da- that damaged their brain some in some fashion. These people are severely disabled, right? And again, they don't have autism, right? They have a severe mental disability. And what happened to them was horrible. The last thing we want is a child with meningitis. Trust me, I've seen it. And I, I've had I knew an older gentleman who had encephalitis as a as a youngster who was institutionalized as whole life, severely cognitively disabled. Again, not autism, not, not the autism that we see today. So I get a little bit puzzled, like, well, what, what is this response? What is this mysterious immune response right, to the vaccines? That's not like you get to a natural right, um, immune challenge. I, I don't know if you ever have any thoughts about that, but it, it just doesn't add up to me.
1: Right. So meningitis is inflammation of the lining of the brain and spinal cord, usually caused by bacteria,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like or *Haemophilus influenzae* type B or meningococcus. Encephalitis is an in involvement of the brain itself. That's usually caused by viruses. Viruses like measles can cause encephalitis or varicella, chickenpox can cause encephalitis. And you're right. The signs and symptoms of that, which can be devastating, are really not those of autism. So. I agree, these are sort of distinct things. I mean, can you make an immune response to cells of your brain that are, are infected with the virus? Of course you can. Can that be damaging, and permanently damaging? Of course it can be, which is why we have a measles vaccine and a chickenpox vaccine. So we don't have to suffer that anymore. Um, but um, you know, the notion that vaccines are doing that is just wrong.
0: And of course, um, I guess I wanna talk a little bit about the epidemiology. I'm sure, I know you've talked about this like a million times, so I'm sorry to do it again. But you know, people say, "Well, you know, Jill, um, you know, there," and I guess RFK Jr. I think has also said this: like, there, there's no, uh, I guess, placebo trial, or there, there's no like group that has been vaccinated and group that's been unvaccinated, and therefore you can't come to any conclusions about the safety of the childhood vaccine schedule. Um, how, how do you respond to that?
1: He just makes things up. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing things up against the wall and hope something's safe. So look at the the, probably the biggest vaccine trial ever done was the polio vaccine trial in 1954 and 1955. 420,000 children got the polio vaccine. 200,000 were inoculated with saline, meaning salt water. Um, That was a placebo-controlled trial. Um, usually the, the, the definition of a placebo, the FDA's definition and the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, are the, the ones that regulate vaccines, their definition is inert. And by what they mean is a substance that's immunologically inert, meaning you don't make an immune response. So you don't make an immune response to to say sucrose, which would be, um, which could be a stabilizing agent in vaccine or sodium citrate or sodium phosphate, things like that. You don't make an immune response to that. You don't make an immune response to salt, for example, when you eat it. And it also has to be harmless. So so those sorts of um, buffering agents or stabilizing agents or emulsifiers are harmless and meet the FDA definition for placebo. So he makes up his own FDA definition, his own definition of placebo and says, well, there are no placebo controlled trials. So if you look at the trial, for example, the rotavirus vaccine trials, the rotavirus vaccine had... the. The, the vaccine itself had the vaccine, meaning the, these live weakened forms of the virus, and then these buffering and stabilizing agents. And then the, the placebo didn't have the, the, the vaccine itself. So therefore there was nothing immunological in it mm. and that served as a placebo. And so he, he's right to the extent that there are some examples where there's not a placebo controlled trial. And that's when, for example, the pneumococcal vaccine. So pneumococcus is bacteria. It causes meningitis, bloodstream infections um, and uh, pneumonia. Mm. And so it was a vaccine called PCV7, which just meant sort of a conjugate pneumococcal vaccine that had seven serotypes in it that was introduced in, in, in 2000. Well, sort of years later, there was a, an, an updated version, if you will. It was PCV13. So it had six more serotypes. So the, the, the control in that study was PCV13 was tested against PCV7 because you couldn't give a placebo to children knowing you had a vaccine that worked, knowing that that PCV7 vaccine decreased the incidence of, of, of sepsis and decrease the incidence of meningitis, increase, decrease the incidence of pneumonia and ear infections, and then give a placebo to children. That's not an ethical study. The World Health Organization makes it very clear that's not an ethical study. And nonetheless, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. points to that as an example of how we don't have placebo because he's perfectly willing, presumably, to put that other group in, in harm's way. I mean, it's this sort of casual cruelty of the placebo-controlled trial. You can't do a placebo-controlled other. Any more than if you had a new inactivated polio vaccine, you could do a placebo controlled trial there to make sure that, you know, it works. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's actually, this is uh, emotional for me only because I'm, uh, I'm a child of the fifties. So I certainly remember the, the polio vaccine and.
0: and oh, th- I have friends who were victims of polio and I, you know, we, we talk sometimes about, um, you know, they're obviously older than I am, but you know, we, we talk sometimes about you know, the anti-vaccine sentiment and they they cannot believe it. (laughs) Like they, they, you know, they, they've suffered so much in their lives. They, they just can't believe how ignorant people are about, you know, how important vaccines are to, um, to, to young children who are so vulnerable no, we do, do
1: placebo control trials because the FDA uh, requires it. But back in that day, Jonas Salk didn't want to do a placebo control trial. He had done he had tested this vaccine in about seven hundred children in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, mm. It worked; it appeared to be meaning it, it induced an immune response that he believed was protective. Mm. He couldn't conscience inoculating first and second graders in the nineteen fifties with salt water, knowing that some of them were going to suffer this disease. And in fact, there were no. six died in that study all in the placebo group there were 36 wow. children that were paralyzed in that study 34 in the placebo group such as the nature of placebo control trials i mean with the, the moderna trial the, the moderna covid trial right you either got the vaccine or you got a placebo which was basically water well there was a death in that trial in the placebo group so so, so that man wasn't lucky but the, he lost that flip of the coin and uh such as the nature of placebo-controlled trials. I mean, we were very casual about the fact, knowing that there are going to be people who risk. I have a friend from North Carolina who volunteered for the Moderna trial about two days after he got the, whether it was going to be either vaccine or placebo. He had headache and he had a sore arm and he had low-grade fever. And he said to his wife, yes, I got the vaccine. got
0: the vaccine, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, what what happens? Like, let's say, you know, more people are listening to RFK Jr., right? And they're like, you know, I'm really worried about, you know, vaccinating my children. I'm going to withhold vaccines from them. You know, at at what point does that become a danger to either that child or the broader community because of the withholding of vaccines?
1: You know, I think... You need look no further than events that occurred in Samoa in 2019. And this was an RFK Jr. phenomenon. So there were, there were um, in, in July of 2018, there were two children who were given an MMR vaccine who died within minutes of getting that vaccine. The reason they died is the way the vaccine is given in Samoa is it comes in a powdered form and it has to be reconstituted with water. The nurses made a mistake. Instead of reconstituting it in water, they reconstituted in, a, in it with a lethal dose of a muscle relaxant, which they oh. gave to those two 12-month-old children who died within minutes. Now, that, within about two weeks, became very clear as to that's what the problem was. It well, wasn't the vaccine. It was the, the nursing error. He was all over them he and Children's Health Defense, which is his organization, were all over Facebook with that. In fact, he went to Samoa, met with anti-vaccine activists, and just kept the drumbeat alive that MMR vaccine was killing children in, in Samoa. So what ended up happening was, because largely of his advocacy, the the, uh, immunization rates there dropped, went from 70% to 30%. And between September and December of 2019, there was a massive outbreak of measles in that country. And 83 people died, virtually all of whom were children less than four years of age. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had everything to do with that. And and I'll tell you, I am more worried now than I have ever been in the 20 or so years that I've been following this sort of anti-vaccine activity because I really think there is a pushback on vaccines that I have never seen before. I mean, now one third of American parents will say they don't think vaccines should be mandated for school. Do that, go back to where we were in the early seventies because school mandates have been in place for decades but mm-hmm. in the early seventies, they really weren't enforced. And so there were massive outbreaks of measles. In 1971, there were 150,000 cases of, of measles and you know, for every thousand cases if of the measles, there'll be a death. This, you know, so mm-hmm. do I think that, that we are on the verge of once again seeing measles outbreaks and seeing measles deaths? Yes, because that is the most contagious of the vaccine-preventable diseases. So okay. that's the one that comes back first. And that's what you're seeing now at some level in this country. We eliminated measles by the year 2000. But now because of an erosion in, in vaccine rates, you're seeing measles come back. And that virus can kill you. And people don't remember that. I mean, we to sort of Jenny McCarthy when she went on uh, Oprah. She said, you know, I'll take the freaking measles every time because she doesn't remember what measles was. I do. I remember what measles was. I, I trained in Baltimore. I did my, my medical school training in Baltimore and there was a massive outbreak of measles in North Baltimore and, and our was flooded with measles. And there were, you know, it's just um, children can die from measles.
0: Um, just looking at a picture of a child with measles fills me with terror. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, as I said, you know, people become very complacent, right? Because we're, Kind of living in our um, in our infectious, you know, disease-free world, right? And, and we forget how horrible um, this is. You know, let us not forget those of us who have been students of American history, um, how entire populations, right, were wiped out by these infectious diseases. You know, when they didn't have um, any kind of uh, immune, you know, basic immune response to them, and um, like you know just talk to native Hawaiians about about what happened. I mean, you have to be crazy to want to go back, right, to the days, right, when people were so vulnerable to infectious diseases. I mean, my goodness. Um, Yeah,
1: you that's the one called... if you look at people with measles, when, when okay, children with, by the way, there was a measles case in Montgomery County just in the past couple of days. So this is now fresh in my mind. But when, when kids come into our emergency department with fever and a rash, they ask old people sometimes like me to come down and take a look because I've seen a lot of measles. I can tell whether someone has measles in 30 seconds. They're sick. And they often, you know, the light is down in the room. They're looking down. They're so-called photophobia, meaning intolerance to light, because they have a mild encephalopathy associated with measles. Mm-hmm. And if you get chest x-rays on children with measles, one half will have an abnormal chest x-ray. Not all have clinical pneumonia, but half will have an abnormal chest x-ray. That is one bad virus. And we just sort of don't, don't, don't realize that anymore. And I, hopefully we don't have to realize it again, but I do worry.
0: Yeah, I mean, even something like hepatitis. I mean, I had a friend who um, developed hepatitis and then he died of liver cancer right? Obviously, that didn't happen as a child that happened as an adult, but he acquired hepatitis as a child. And um, people are like, well, no one gets hepatitis. I'm like, really? (laughs) Because I know someone who died of it. And, um, you know, again, a vaccine preventable disease that had a devastating consequence. Um, Well, we talked, I'm sorry to go back to to, to something else, but we, we talked a little bit About um, epidemiology, we didn't really get into all those all those study after study after study showing that you know vaccination you know didn't in was not related to autism risk. What about animal models? Like you, all these parents who say not not that there are that many, but who say, oh, you know, my child had all these vaccines and then had a seizure, right? And then you know descended into regression. Um, What do the animal models show? Are, Are are there is there any evidence of change in brain development, you know, in the animals who receive these vaccines?
1: Not to my knowledge. No, no. Okay. I mean, I think, I mean, can a vaccine cause a seizure? Yes, it can, because it can cause, because vaccines can cause fever, because a fever is a, is a consequence of your immune response. And if you have a rapid rise in your temperature, you can have a seizure. My daughter actually associated with uh, uh, one of the DT p vaccine dtap vaccines had a so called febrile seizure meaning seizure associated with fever now those those fevers are, those seizures are short lived they aren't associated with sequelae meaning that they don't have any any sort of long term effect at all on 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 development brain development etc but but those two things get associated right so you could have a seizure with the, with the vaccine and then because there may have been regression anyway independent of whether you had a seizure from a vaccine people link those two things because you know, we're always looking for 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 that association. I mean, the story I tell uh, because it's true. My wife is a private practicing pediatrician, and so she came into the office on a, on a weekend and was helping the nurse give vaccines. So there was a four month old sitting on her mother's lap, and while my wife was drawing the vaccine up into the syringe, the four month old had a seizure, and went on to have a permanent seizure disorder and was had passed away by age five due to eight to eight neurological disease. If my wife had given that vaccine five minutes earlier and then the child had a seizure and then the, the child went on to develop this chronic neurological disease epilepsy and then ultimately died, I think the mother would perfectly understandably say, look, I mean, my child got a vaccine, then they had a seizure. Now they're dead from a neurological disorder. I'm the mother of a vaccine damaged child, even though that wouldn't have been true. I mean, we're, you know, we're just uh, compelled by anecdotes.
0: You know, and um, kind of similar to that, one thing that you can really readily observe is that the alleged, you know, vaccine reactions, you know, are happening in this 12 month to kind of 18 month period, you know, generally, which is when usually autism manifests during infant development. You don't see these things happening to three, four, five year olds. Right. So if you're having this kind of brain damage, this brain damage would be uh, kind of consistent, I would think, along the childhood continuum. Why would it just be in that narrow period in which autism tends to manifest? It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, um, I, I do think that there's just a lot of coincidence that's probably going on and people attribute something to the timing of of the vaccine. That doesn't make any sense. In any sense at all? Um, oh, um, let's see. Uh, I think just one more question. I think um, so. A lot of a lot of letters I got after I, I wrote a piece in the pre Press kind of went like this: Jill, autism rates have been increasing. We don't really know what's causing it. We should not let any hypothesis off the table. We should be pursuing with vigor every possible um, risk factor for autism, why are you telling me that we should, you know, keep, you know, vaccines off the table? And, you know, my feeling is like, I'm personally someone who is very, very interested in what is really causing autism. And that's exactly why I want vaccines off the table, (laughs) because we have limited resources, right? We uh, you know, we don't have infinite research funds. We don't have infinite labs. We don't have infinite number of researchers, you know, to go after these things. So, you know, we can go after, I mean, look at all the things that have tracked with the rise of autism. Like, you know, the wearing of yoga pants has tracked with the rise of autism. You know, the, the number of boba drinks, right, that have been served have tracked with the rise of autism. You know, all, there's so many things that we could study, Right, But it's like, there has to be biological plausibility. It has to be something that is consistent with what we see in terms of the neurophysiology of autism. So my answer is like, why would we do that when there are so many other things that we could be talking about instead, you know, given our, our finite resources and time? I don't know what, what, what you say when people say things like this to you.
1: I completely agree with you. I, this, this, When Andrew Wakefield raised that question about whether MMR caused autism, that was a very well-studied phenomenon. Millions of dollars were spent basically chasing a fruitless dead-end hypothesis. Same thing was true with ethyl mercury as a preservative. I think the same thing has been true basically with aluminum as an adjuvant. I mean, I think the public health and academic community has responded by looking at the the, the vaccine autism question Hard, And were I the parent of a child with autism, I would be pretty angry at this point that so much money has been devoted to, to something that, one, doesn't make a lot of biological sense, and two, doesn't make much clinical sense, and, and yet uh, uh, I think that money could have been far better spent on resources or or, or looking at other more uh, valid hypotheses. I mean, uh, Alison Singer, who's head of the Autism Science Foundation, was kind enough to ask me to be on the board of her organization. But what I love about that organization is that they just try and look at the science that makes sense rather than just following these sort of public fears, you know, these sort of cultural concerns that really don't make much biological sense at
0: all. So I'd like to wrap it up. Um, if you could give a message to the young parents of America or the world, um, you know, just your sage advice to them, what, what would it be?
1: I think there are disorders that are frustrating because you don't have a clear evidence for a, a cause or a clear evidence for a cure. But but um I, I think that the 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 by linking sort of vaccines to autism, we've scared some people permanently. I mean, even though I think the MMR Autism uh, Association is clearly dead and scientifically, nonetheless, you have somebody like RFK Jr. still saying that, which has influence. And, and, you know, your number one job as a parent is to put your child in the safest position as possible. And that's what vaccines do. And the hardest thing for me working at Children's Hospital Philadelphia is when I see children come in with vaccine preventable diseases that cause them to suffer and occasionally go to the intensive care unit and worse when you knew that was preventable. And so, so please, Put your child in the safest position possible, and that's what vaccines do.
0: Yeah, thank thank you for that. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a little tail on that, (laughs) which is you mentioned intensive care. You know, there is actually a pharmaceutical out there that we know causes at least subtle neurological damage in young children and infants, and that is um, general anesthesia. You know, uh, sevoflurane. Um, in particular, and which is a common um, inhalational anesthetic. And I'm not saying like, don't give your kids surgery. You absolutely should if they need surgery. But I'm saying like, what's amazing to me is like, you have study after study after study showing that here's a pharmaceutical that actually might have, at least in some high doses and repetitive doses, might have some long-term consequences for neurological development of a child there's absolutely no one paying attention to that. Right. And you have all these vaccine people who are like, well, let's pay attention to the vaccines, I guess because it comes in the form of a shot and it's an owie and you get a bandaid or something like that. Like it, it boggles my mind. Like you want to protect your child to the, to the maximum extent you can. And that includes, um, you know, following, uh, the CDC vaccination schedule. So, um, Anyway, I won't keep you any longer, but I think that, uh, you know, I really honestly from bottom of my heart, I really appreciate all the time and effort you've put into promoting public health and debunking conspiracy theories um, and um, trying to get the world on the right track. I wish that uh, everyone would listen to you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Confidential. If you'd like to learn more, share an idea for an episode, or become a sponsor, please visit us at autismconfidential.org. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual speakers. Content presented is for informational purposes only, and we do not provide any medical or legal advice.